Well, good morning, everybody. How are you doing? We're going to start just briefly uh, with a little bit of a recap. Um, I'm going to be stressing through this leg of the series and through uh, the other two legs of this series, this concept or these concepts of the four types of knowing. So I'm going to put that on the screen real quick and then walk through it, and then we'll just kind of set up where we're going from there. So the first type of knowing that we're all familiar with is propositional knowing. Again, this is knowing about things. Two plus two equals four would be a proposition. That God is omniscient or something like this would be something that we would say is a proposition. The second type of knowing is procedural knowing. That's knowing how to do things. And I've made the distinction each week, and it's a really important thing, that procedural knowing can happen without propositional knowing being in place. You can, you can know how to ride a bike and not know the physics behind riding a bike, right? You can know how to ride a bike and not know the physics behind it. You can know how to do a lot of things without knowing all the details. One of my examples was how your children learn language or how our children learn language. They do not know what prepositions are. They do not know what proper punctuation uh, occurs in different places before they can talk. We teach them to talk, and they begin to talk because they learn the procedure of talking. They, they join with us in this activity. The next type of knowing is perspectival knowing. This is a knowing of how to perceive things. How many of you know that each one of you in this room has a different perspective? I mean, actually, visibly, right now, you have a different perspective. But you also have a different perspective in the way you were brought up, in the way you were raised, in the gender that you have. You have a different perspective. Now, we talk about this all the time, about getting into another person's shoes and all of this stuff. And what that is is some sort of uh, sad attempt or some sort of loose attempt to try to develop the idea of empathy. But... It is my view that you can never fully enter someone else's shoes. And the reason for that is because you've never walked their walk. You've never talked their talk. You've never lived their life. And those perspectives change how they see things. Uh, two men are not created equal, right? And, and I don't mean that in that they, don't have this, that they should have the same rights or shouldn't. They should. But what I'm getting at is that uh, a man who has walked a life of, of pain and turmoil is not going to be understood perfectly by one who hasn't walked that walk. So, so there's different things. Perspectival knowing changes a lot. When it comes to biblical interpretation, we need to be able to get into the perspective of the ancient audience or the ancient writers or the ancient minds. And the only way we're going to be able to understand things is if we take on a different perspective the only way we will understand things. The, the fourth type of knowing is participatory knowing, and that's knowing how to relate to the world. This is what happens when you, when you join in with somebody on something and you, and you participate. You're part of something. There is some way that you relate to the world. So I gave you this grand example throughout the, throughout the weeks that the way God does this, and this is the order of belief in reverse, but the way God does this is Jesus invites Peter to participate with him, doesn't he? He says, come and follow me. And Peter begins to participate with him. And it begins to show Peter a different way to relate to the world. 
He is now going to relate to the world as a servant of King Jesus. He is going to be one of God's disciples, one of Jesus' disciples to go into the world and heal the sick and raise the dead and cast out demons and proclaim that Jesus actually is who he says he is. And so Peter is asked to participate. From that participation, he gains a brand new perspective. He understands right at the boat when Jesus calls him that he is a sinner and that he is unworthy to even stand in the presence of the one who has called him, right? He understands that perspective, but Peter's belief hasn't started yet. Peter can know a lot of things, but Peter doesn't believe anything yet. So Jesus invites him to walk with him. He gives him a new perspective of who he is, and then with The idea of redemption, that perspective continues to grow as a child of God. Procedural knowing is that Jesus doesn't just ask people to come and learn propositional facts about him. That's not what he invites them to do. Come and sit down and let me walk you through a doctrinal class. He doesn't do that. Does he teach them? Yes, he teaches them. Does he command us to teach people everything that he taught us? Yes, he does right? But what he did with Peter was he said, let's do it. Let's walk this walk. Let's, let's practice this journey. And so before Peter even understands all the ins and outs of the Christian life, he is working in procedural knowing. And finally, through the propositions that he's learning from Jesus and the walk that he's walking and the perspective that he's gained and the participation in all of this, Peter finally acknowledges that Jesus is Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I put this this way for you guys for two weeks now, that that is actually your journey of faith. That's all of our journeys of faith, and we do not come to faith in this very quick McDonald's version of faith, running through the drive through pray this prayer and walk this out, you'll be fine. You come to believe, you come to know, and you come to trust Jesus more and more every day you walk, right? Why is that? Because you operate in all these types of knowing in your faith. You operate in each piece of this as you walk with Jesus. I told you also that one of the challenges the church faces is that all we ever seem to do is disciple people in propositional truths. Do you believe that God is omniscient? Do you believe that God is omnipresent? Do you believe that God is sovereign? Do you believe that he is good? If you do, you're a Christian. Aha. No. Even the demons believe this stuff and shudder. Right? They know all of these ideas. It doesn't mean that they're followers. How do you know Jesus? How do you know that when you come, to, come face to face with him, he will not say, depart from me, I never knew you? How do you know it? Because you know him in the participation that you walk in. You know him in the perspective he has given you you, through faith. You know him in the walk that he's called you to, that faith has feet and you do stuff. And you know that the propositional truths that you have learned become all that more real because you've walked it out, right? So this is what we've been talking about, and it's important because as we're trying to understand the Scripture, as we're trying to understand things like Genesis, uh, we need to gain a different perspective. We need to walk out procedural knowing and biblical interpretation by getting back into the ancient mind, interpreting words correctly, and when we do, we might come away with truer propositional ideas. And that's the aim for us in this time. 
So, we've done a lot of setup to jump right in to getting through a whopping one verse today. You ready? At this rate, we will get done with Genesis when Jesus returns, and no sooner, right? And if he comes back before, good. He'll give you better answers than I ever thought I could. Okay, so the first thing that I want you to see is a... um, is a way to pronounce Hebrew. This is not, these are not Hebrew letters, okay? <laughs> but this is a way to pronounce Hebrew. This is how we phonetically uh, would say these things. This says, Bereshit bara Elohim et hasameim veit haris. Is that as clear as mud to you? It's awesome. We got it. And I still think I screwed that up royally. But it's, it's, that's it. Genesis 1-1, go home. You're like, that doesn't, that's not helpful, Nathan. That's not helpful. Why is it not helpful? Because there's no English meaning to it yet. There's nothing that has pulled you in yet. And so we need to be able to get to this. The reason why that's not clear is because it's a foreign language. But here is my challenge to you. Our English renderings of Genesis 1-1, our English renderings of a lot of Scripture, I would argue would be a foreign language in more ways than one to the ancient audience. Why? First and less uh, serious is because it's English. How many of you uh, will be honest with me and say you don't even understand your own language yet? That's exactly right, because it's just the most confusing language on the planet. Okay, so it would be hard enough for them to see it in English. But here's the real reason why it would be a foreign language if if we gave them our interpretation. Because we read our worldview into the things that we say. We love to read our worldview into it because we don't know any other way to do it. Okay? So I'm going to give you the English rendering and then we're going to come back to it a little bit. This Hebrew idea is translated this way. In beginning created God the heavens, sky, and the earth, land. That just sounds like a kid that doesn't know how to talk yet, right? 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 In beginning created God. Okay. In beginning, God created, this is how this works, right? God created the heavens, the sky, and the earth, the land. Now, in the Septuagint, in the Greek, this is the Greek rendering of that Hebrew text. This is what we see in Greek. Yes, those are Greek words. In Archin, um... Epison, I think. Epison. Oh, there it is. I put it on there. Okay. Otheos ton uranos ke tin yin. That's awesome too, isn't it? Wonderful. Okay. Now let's go to the English again. Same thing. Do you notice? Do you notice what's happening here? It's the same rendering, but we've got a real problem in our version. In beginning, created the God, the heavens and the earth. So in Beginning, the God created the heavens and the earth. This is the English rendering of this, okay? This is as close to an English rendering as we're going to get. But there's something missing in that that you all have in your English Bibles. And what is it? Anybody know? The word the. It's a very interesting thing. The definite article in the beginning God created the heavens and earth is not there. And I'm telling you right now that the significance of that definite article not being there is absolutely 
revolutionary and needs to be understood. Because it's going to make a lot of sense when we start debating people in our world, when we start engaging with people outside of our worldview that start to say they understand things better due to science than we do as we read our scriptures. In beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Robert Alter, in his translation and commentary, uh, it's called The Five Books of Moses, writes this. He says, It is an old and in some ways unfair cliche to say that translation is always a betrayal. That is a cliche, though. It's not on the screen yet, guys. Um, It is a betrayal, right? Uh, Because translating from one language to another is hard. This is an example for you that's quite fun. I use this example a lot. The King James says that God created God creates good and God creates evil. How many of you like that? Wait a second. What do we mean by this? God creates evil. God is good. He can't do this. God creates evil. In King James English, evil meant calamity. And God does bring about calamity on those who sin and those who disobey him. He does. But we are so obsessed with moral evil that we would hear that rendering and go, oh, we have a problem. And many, many skeptics today go, your own Bible says God creates evil. What are they doing? Misinterpreting something. That's just a couple hundred years ago. That's not even that long ago. Think about how complicated it is when we go back 2,000 years. And so the cliche is that translation is always a betrayal. So Robert Alter, again, he says, in, uh, it is an old and in some ways unfair cliche to say that translation is always a betrayal. But modern English versions of the Bible provide unfortunately persuasive evidence for that uncompromising generalization. Our Modern translations make it to where it's just a mess. It is absolutely a betrayal of original language. This is what will be on the screen. He continues to say this. The unacknowledged heresy, and he uses a very intense word there, which I'm not sure I agree with. The unacknowledged heresy underlying most modern English versions of the Bible is the use of translation as a vehicle for explaining the Bible instead of representing it in another language. Do you know what that means? English translations try to tell you what it means instead of just translating words. And because of that, you believe what that translation says. Because you believe what that meaning is. Because it was given to you. And then you go to church and the pastor says, every word is wrong. And you go, I hate this guy. And then I say, you should hate them. It's not my fault. Okay? But it is very challenging, right? So the unacknowledged heresy underlying most modern English versions of the Bible is the use of translation as a vehicle for explaining the Bible instead of representing it in another language. And in the most egregious circumstances, this amounts to explaining away the Bible. So let me, let me put it to you very bluntly and quickly and then work through it. If the definite article is present in Genesis 1, it literally says to us in the absolute beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But if it is not there, hint, it is not there. And if it is not there, 
It does not mean that that was the ultimate beginning of all things. It means that when God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void. The earth, as, Rob, uh, as um, Alter would say, was welter and waste. It's, a, it's an idea of painting a picture for you that is beautiful. And that God, along the theme of all of Scripture, as a grand potter, started with something that was clay. Now, did God create that clay to begin with? Of course he did. He is the originator of all things. But Genesis 1.1 does not tell you when those originations began. And so what we have in the picture of Genesis 1 is God coming down with his breath, hovering over the waters of the deep. You have God holding his clay in his hand and saying, let there be light. And he breathes into this mess and he starts creating an order to the cosmos. It's a beautiful picture. Later in Jeremiah, we see that we are clay made by the potter. In Romans and in Timothy, we see that we're remade by the potter because our clay was a mess. And all of this gets communicated over and over and over. But it can only be understood if we'll go back to the original text and see what it means. But we don't. Because we like to read into it what we feel good about. You remember what I shared with you last week about Bertrand Russell's quote? Some of the things that we believe, we believe just because they're safe. But the second we start unwinding that safety, we panic. And we panic, and what we do is we just go back and say, but grandma told me, but dad told me, but mom told me. Well, guess what? And I know this is hard to hear. Your grandma may have been wrong. Same with your mom, same with your dad. It's okay. They may have been wrong. What our job is, is to rightly divide God's word. What our job is, is to fight for truth. Here's something that John Walton says. John Walton says, As should be obvious, though to many it apparently is not, the Old Testament is more similar to the culture of the ancient Near East, and the New Testament is to the culture of the Greeks and Romans than either is to the 21st century world. You know why you need to know that? Because they didn't live in a scientific world, which means one really important thing, Genesis cannot and never should be read as a scientific text. Shouldn't be. It may comport with science when we discover things, but please understand, you should not try to use this as a science textbook. They did not think the way we think, but we are so hard-headed about this, and we must force everything into our worldview. And when it doesn't fit that way, here's what we do. Science is bunk. It's a very dangerous approach to it. And here's why it's a dangerous approach. Because you've bought a lot of science that people have brought to you. I shared with you last week. You bought into the science that the earth is a globe and it's held in gravitational pull by the sun. And you understand that there aren't four pillars holding things up. You also took science to understand that the earth isn't a flat disk. You've also taken science to understand that there's not some sort of archway spanning the cosmos up here that separates the, the space from us. You know this, right? 
Maybe you might call it the ozone layer, but the point is you looked at science and you came with a better understanding. But what is amazing about all those ideas is they do not contradict the Bible at all. They don't throw any wrench in your understanding of the Bible unless you just want them to for no apparent reason. They don't have a problem with the way we interpret things or they don't present a problem for the way we interpret things. David Dockery says this, he says, The Bible properly interpreted in light of the culture, their culture, and communication developed by the time of its composition will be shown to be completely true, and therefore not false, in all that it affirms. But notice that. All that it affirms. If you keep reading the Bible to say things that it doesn't say, when you find a contradiction in life, in everything around you, you're going to be upset. You're going to be in upheaval. Your world is going to be upside down. And it doesn't need to be. Because the Bible actually communicates what is true in all that it affirms. To the degree of precision, and I love this, intended by the author in all matters relating to God and his creation. I'm going to read you uh, an excerpt in a little while from from Waltke, who paints just, in my opinion, uh, one of the best pictures of the purpose of Genesis 1. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing, and I'll, I'll get there in just a second. But we have to understand how we're supposed to interpret the Bible, and we need to know that we've got to go back to an ancient mind, and we've got to understand what it is that they're saying, and not understand what we want it to say. Now, this, again, is all about rightly dividing the Word of God, and I'm going to say something now. I, I, I have no idea if the things I've said so far feel controversial to you, but I want to share with you, um, I want to share with you a, a potentially controversial idea when it comes to what God is doing in Genesis. I want you to see that, that God is, um, God has allowed us in the 21st century to understand something that nobody else in human history has ever understood, and that's a good thing. Some people will look, at the, uh, will, will look at the Hebrew Bible and they'll say, that's great, I understand that there's a translation issue and we can work through it, but here's my question, Nathan, and you've said this, I think, Nathan, uh, we should look at what the first century church fathers believed about what the text said. Have you heard me say that? We should look to what the first century church fathers have said regarding the text in the Old Testament. That is an absolutely good and amazing approach, but not when it comes to interpreting Genesis 1-1. Why? Why, Nathan? This is absolutely irrational. You're just picking and choosing. No, they didn't live in a scientific world either. They didn't know what we know. They didn't understand what we understand. And because that's true, the first century church fathers simply understood what was understood. And they continued to convey that. And everything we have discovered since continues to expand our mind. And there's no problem with it. There's absolutely no problem with the church. We get to grow and we get to learn. We are the first people in human history that get to sail into space and look back at everything God has made. It's beautiful, isn't it? They didn't know what that looked like, no matter how hard they tried. They could have prayed about it. Maybe God could have taken them up like he did John into a third heaven and said, ta-da, but he didn't. 
He didn't. And we have the ability to see Genesis 1-1. We have the ability to see Genesis, in my estimation, in the most accurate light that any human has ever been able to see it. Why? Because we're modern people. And we're able to see things that others could not see. When it comes to doctrine, yeah, we should just run back to those church fathers and understand how they understood things and the way things, the way things unfolded. Probably more so within their context and take that into, into account. But we can't go back to the church fathers just for everything. Because they're not going to interpret what we have observed with our own eyes well. They're not going to do it. And this is challenging, right? This is challenging because we go, no, I just don't like this, Nathan. It just doesn't sound right. I promise you, we're getting closer to what is right. Here's what Bruce Waltke said in his prologue to Genesis 1, uh, 1 chapter 1, verses two, uh, chapter 2, verse 3. He says, the prologue announces that the God of the covenant community is the same as the creator of the cosmos. Sounds awesome so far, doesn't it? That's what he's telling us. That's what Moses is telling us. God is the implicit king of the cosmos, making provision, establishing order, and commissioning regents. Now, let's just zoom in on this for just a second. If the prologue is announcing that the God of the covenant community is the same as the creator of the cosmos, we need to take a pause and say, what are we talking about covenant community? We're talking about who? The Jewish people. We're talking about Moses... After he's delivered them out of Egypt, right? And we're talking about a, 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 a compilation of writing that probably is first read to them or fully read to them after he's dead, okay? But we're saying that Moses, who is educated in, Hebrew, in, uh, in Egyptian worldviews, Moses, who looks at the situation, looks to these people, hears what God says, and looks to them and says, not Ra, not Baal, not anyone else, but God has created this. And there's a significance in the language change, because in chapter 1, you hear Elohim, Elohim, Elohim. But in chapter 2, all of a sudden, Moses drops this, Elohim Yahweh. Which is not just God, 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 Yahweh. This is the one who brought you out of Egypt is the same one who made all this stuff. Right? Walkie picks up on this perfectly. It's just simple. He can put one line and communicate an amazing amount of stuff. He's brilliant. The prologue announces that the God of the covenant community is the same as the creator of the cosmos. God is the implicit king of the cosmos, making provision, establishing order, and commissioning regents. The life support system of air, water, and land provide creation's abundance of all sort of living species with sustenance and space to live. It is the stage on which the drama of history under God will be played. He goes on. God steps creatively in the primordial abyss and darkness to transform it into a magnificent, ordered, and balanced universe. Those who submit themselves to the Creator's rule are assured that their history will not end in tragic darkness and chaos, but will continue in triumphant light and order. Who is he talking to again? Moses, when he's telling him the creation story. Free Jews. 
He's talking to a people who have been held in darkness, who have been held in captivity, and he's brought them out. And not only does he say the creation gives light to everything that you do, but God is your God, and he will not let you suffer and die. He will not abandon you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. The challenge that we have is that we read Genesis back through our scientific worldview, and we've missed the whole dang story. Like, well, what is it, Nathan? Is it the beginning or is it in beginning? Well, it's in beginning. And that means something. And we'll get to that in just a second. But that story cannot be lost on us. The story of Genesis cannot be lost on us. Because the same God who delivered Egypt out, or delivered the Jews out of Egypt, is the same God who built everything, and he's the same God who sustains them. And this is a beautiful, beautiful truth. In Robert Homestead's uh, work, Hebrew Grammar and Translation, he says this. In a nutshell, we're back to the translation of Genesis 1.1. In a nutshell, the interpretation and translation of the first complex word, Bereshit, uh, in the Masoretic text of the Leningrad Codex as an absolute temporal prepositional phrase. You with me? That's awesome. Anyway, don't worry about it. In the beginning. That's what all that summed up. That is a temporal prepositional phrase, okay? As that set up, an absolute temporal prepositional phrase in the beginning is grammatically indefensible. That's pretty hard, isn't it? It's grammatically indefensible, and this is how far this, this scholar goes. Period, end of story. You don't usually hear that among scholars. They're like, let's keep this open for discussion and debate. He's a period, end of story. And this guy is unbelievable in his understanding of Hebrew grammar. He says again, Genesis 1, an unmarked restrictive relative clause. Okay, you got it? Got it? I'm glad you know this. Okay, good. I don't. A restrictive reading for the clause, Bereshit bara Elohim et hasamayim veit haris, means that the resit, or the uh, reshit there, specified is not semantically absolute, but relative to the event provided by the restrictive relative clause. I know you're going, shut up, Nathan. Let me get there. Thus, any translation or Semitic reading, semantic reading, not Semitic reading, any semantic reading of the translation that would identify Rashid in Genesis 1 as the beginning would fail to recognize the significance of relative clause syntax. I say all that to tell you that this very smart human being who studies Hebrew and understands its syntax and everything says it's not possible. Okay? It's not possible. Let's go even further. Ben Stanhope, he writes this. Not a single one of our vowel-marked Hebrew manuscripts, called the Masoretic Text, marks Genesis 1-1 with the word the, as in, in the beginning. Now, what does he go on to say about this? This is where it gets real, church. This is where it might offend. This is where it pushes. Since it doesn't exist in that, he goes on, this is Ben Stanhope, goes on to point out the significance of it, this is that it places, places, it places uh, organizations like the Creation Museum, its planetarium, and their astrophysical models 
it places them in a position where they have predicated everything they believe on a word that doesn't exist. Well, that's hard. The word the is inferred, and you're making everything about the beginning of all things happening in Genesis 1-1 as an assumption that is not there. And according to a Hebrew scholar and grammarian, he says it's not even possible for the to be there. Ben Stanhope goes on. The opening verses of Genesis do not describe creation from nothing. Though they don't contradict the, either, the idea, the Hebrew syntax of the creation account does not allow us to establish when the matter of the universe or the pre-earth materials were brought into being in the author's mind. For all we know, this matter may have existed for as long as the majority of cosmologists think it has. 14 billion years old. Is that frustrating to you? Are you looking at me like, finding another church next week? <laughs> the looks I'm getting from some, anyway, right? This is challenging, church. But these are the things that we need to look at. Because if we are going to fight with people over things that they observe, over things, I'm not even saying they're right, I'm simply saying, hypothetically, if we're going to fight people over things that they have observed based on wrong information and interpretation, we got a problem. And when, they, and when it does prove to be this, let's say it does, if it does prove to be this, we're over here holding the bag. We're over here standing on our Bibles going, the earth is flat. <laughs> Good for you. You're dumb. Right? This is challenging stuff, guys. Robert Holmstead goes on. I offer here a linguistic argument that, that Genesis 1 provided in verse 1 is a restrictive relative clause. The nature of which implies that the traditional understanding of an explicit reference to an absolute beginning is grammatically ill-founded. He goes on, although many Hebraists have departed from the traditional understanding of uh, uh, Tivar, in Genesis 1, it ha as an independent phrase with grammatical reference to the beginning, it is a view that continues to thrive and is reflected by the majority of modern translators. We're going to get to what that is about. He goes on, the syntax of the verse, based on well-attested features within biblical Hebrew grammar, dictates that there were potentially multiple Tivar periods, time periods, or uh, epochs, if you will, or stages of God's creative work. Nathan, this is great. You're confusing the crap out of me. Now I'm going to look for another church, but can you tell me what your point is? <laughs> I can. I can tell you what my point is. I promise I can tell you what my point is after I get water. <laughs> my point is that we live in a world that is discovering things constantly. And they're seeing things that we accept to a large degree. And then we fight things because of our interpretations of things. But the world says, the, the, the scientific world says, I believe that this cosmos, this earth, has been around for billions of years, okay? It's been around for billions of years. 
And we look at it and we go, no, it hasn't. And they say, well, we kind of are looking at weird fossil records in different time periods, and we're looking at if the speed of light is a constant, we're looking back through space, and we're seeing distance and time associated with all of this. This seems to be indicating that we are this old. And we go, no, it's not actually happening. And why do we base our belief on this? Because we say the Bible tells us so. And the Bible doesn't tell you so. The Bible literally says that there may be multiple beginnings. So we go back to Genesis 1 and it says, When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void. Now think about this just for a second, just common sense. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void. That doesn't make any sense. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, he created the heavens and the earth. That would make sense. But he starts with something that's formless and void. And you ask the question, well, what does that mean? What does it mean for the earth to be formless and void at that point? It means that God's lump of clay was not identified as ordered. It was not identified as ordered. But God takes this and he puts order to it. And so with this understanding, with something that pre-existed, that God created ultimately anyway, that something pre-existed, we can absolutely take the Bible and have it comport with science that the world has been here for billions of years. And it doesn't change a thing. Plus, grammar's on my side. Hebrew syntax is on my side. And what do you have on your side? If you believe in a, a, a young earth, what you, what you have on your side, I know this is hard, what you have on your side is an English version of something. You have an English version. So we're back to this statement that Robert Alter made before when he talked about the betrayal that happens in language. It is an old and in some ways unfair cliche to say that translation is always a betrayal. But modern English versions of the Bible provide unfortunately persuasive evidence for the uncompromising generalization. The unacknowledged heresy underlying most modern English versions of the Bible is the use of translation as a vehicle for explaining. Stop interpreting. Just give me the words. And the Bible instead, explaining the Bible, instead of representing it in another language. And the most egregious circumstances, in the most egregious circumstances, this amounts to explaining away the Bible. Because if the Bible's creation story does not say that it has to be young, we have explained away what it actually does say by making it say it's young. I know this is hard. This is like, wait a second. This just jacks with everything. So what am I inviting you to do? Push back. That's what I'm inviting you to do. I'm inviting you to push back. But listen, I don't want you to push back under these circumstances. Nuh-uh, Nathan. Do you hear me? Nuh-uh is not an argument. <laughs> this is the world we live in. Uh-uh. I don't believe that. Nuh-uh. I don't want you to push back with nuh-uh. I want you to push back with actual stuff. I want you to fight for an understanding of this. And we will go as long as you want to go with these ideas. But what I want to challenge you with in Genesis 1-1 is that without the definite article, the understanding is that there were multiple beginnings of things, including a formless void 
lump of clay that God formed into what we know as the earth. And that's beautiful to me. And that doesn't contradict the Bible at all. As a matter of fact, if we understand Hebrew grammar, it seems to be what it says. Isn't that amazing? Everybody's like, nope, it's not amazing, man. Mm -mm. I don't like you. I think you're a jerk, and that's all there is to it. So, what am I saying and what am I not saying? I'm saying a whole lot of things about Hebrew grammar, and I am not saying that because this is true or could be true, we came from monkeys. I'm not saying that. But this is the slippery slope fallacy that absolutely everybody in the Christian world falls victim to and is guilty of. We automatically go, oh my gosh, he doesn't believe this, that means everything else is junk. Not even close. Not even close. What we're going to do is we're going to fight through that too. And that's an interesting argument all in and of itself. We're going to fight through the six days of creation and ask the question, are they literal? And I am going to give you the ultimate answer. (laughs) No, anyway, I'm just going to talk to you about it, right? And then you're going to push back with it because these are challenging ideas. But what we set out to do in this series was to prepare you to be able to talk with skeptics in this world that struggle. We need you to be able to talk with them and not sit there and go, I'm just going with whatever the Bible says. And they're like, it's not flat, idiot, right? Like, we don't want that. We want people to go, they're, they're wise people. They have great understanding. They do know what the arguments are. And they're weighing in well on these arguments. We need to be those people, church. We need to fight for this kind of stuff. And I know that that becomes challenging. I know that it makes you feel like, well, now i got to go back and learn Hebrew and all this other stuff. There are plenty of resources for this. But while I'm here, I want to tell you something about resources that you need to know as well. Nathan, don't take this away from me, please. Okay, I promise I will take a little away from you. I love and have been an advocate of the Blue Letter Bible from day one. I love this this Bible. It's got so many tools. Here's what I want you to be careful with. When you go to the Hebrew, uh, or to the, um, when you go to the Blue Letter Bible and you select a word, and you look for its Hebrew or Greek equivalent, please understand something. They do not put the word within the context of the verse. They give you the root word for it. And the root word can have a variation of meaning. And so people go to, I did this for a while, you go to the blue letter, and you're looking at it, and you say, oh, that's awesome. It's that, that's what that word means. It might not. It might not, and you have to look at it through an actual Greek or an actual actual Hebrew translation because different things change based on the endings and the all of this, okay? So I want to encourage you, as you're going to resources, plug into, plug into some really solid resources that are going to give you the actual words that you're supposed to be reading, okay? I just want to challenge you with that. I also want you guys to really engage with me. You, nobody in this room is allowed, <laughs> you're going to love this, nobody in this room is allowed to leave this church before you talk to me, okay? Over this sermon. I mean, you can leave because you don't like Barney, that's fine, but anyway, no, you won't leave for that. Anyway, so I want you to talk to me. If you're challenged by this, talk to me. If you're frustrated with what I've said, talk to me. Let's actually discuss these things. 
We better get ourselves in a solid position. Otherwise, all those stats I shared two weeks ago are going to continue to be true. We're going to continue to see a drop in faith because people go, you just don't believe anything that's true. You just believe fairy tales. So what does the beginning of Genesis say? In beginning. In beginning created the God, the heavens, and the earth for a Greek rendering. God did it. It doesn't mean that it was all created at that point. It doesn't mean that's the ultimate beginning of all things. It doesn't even land us in the idea of what scholars call ex nihilo or creation from nothing. It doesn't do it. It simply tells us that when God began to create the heavens and the earth, he was working with something that was formless and void, and he brought order to it so that he could put you and I here to bring glory to him. Amen?